Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be on the air with you guys, and hard to believe tomorrow is the um, midway point to our final week in April. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we actually started the month of April, and what do you know, we're just a few days shy of April's end. I mean, today's the 25th, after today we only got five more days, but before we know it, we're going to be into the start of May. Well, I will say in this um, next upcoming uh, podcast segment episode that I'll be uh, discussing uh, tonight, it's going to be one filled with drama. Now, I'm not talking about drama like that of a soap opera, people, but I'm talking about drama that will um, be suspenseful, drama that will have some twists and turns, but it's the type of drama that is really more about survival. A type of drama that, yes, can bring uncertainty, but it's the type of, but it's the type of uncertainty that, um, that for those aboard Erie, don't have control over. But I'm beginning to wonder at the same time, for those whom don't have control over the drama that's about to unfold, is that the passengers, perhaps? What about the captain and his crew? Is there anything that's um, within their control that could uh, prevent the worst-case scenario from happening? I'm not sure, but what we do know is that even in the midst of a crisis, there are those whom rise to the occasion, and then there are those whom sit back and do nothing and watch everything un- everything unravel before them to where they... Um, Really, it might be fair to say where they become cowards and watch countless uh, people, innocent people, die in front of their eyes because they chose to do nothing about it. So I'm beginning to wonder, or what we will wonder about as we as we go forward in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, is how will Captain um, Thomas Jefferson Titus, or I should say T.J. Titus, respond to something that he had never come across before. I know right now at this moment I could be giving away some stuff, but I'm just trying to give you all the best uh, heads up um, there is with what we're going to be talking about, because we are going to be seeing, or not so much seeing, we're going to be hearing about a lot of um, sadness. And I hate to say that, but there, there have been plenty of situations throughout the history of mankind, where sadness prevailed. But yet we have, but perhaps depending on those uh, situations, we've also come to learn where mankind did somehow um, step in and make a difference and help make things a little bit brighter for those whom endured um, what would be considered a never-ending saga of sadness. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, you know, well, Kirk, can you, do you know of a situation or a moment in history where there was an ongoing saga of sadness? Well, it happened before I was born, and it is something that must never be forgotten. It should never happen again. How about the Holocaust? Talk about never-ending sadness there. Families being broken apart, torn apart all because they were of Jewish faith. Family members never saw one another again. I, mean, I can't imagine being in Otto Frank's shoes, losing his wife and two daughters. One of them went on to, uh, you know, she unfortunately she never got to live to see the fame or the accomplishments that would become um, internationally world-known Worldwide known, um, Otto Frank's daughter, um, Anne Frank. You know, there was a lot of sadness in the Holocaust, but yet I have learned from, from time to time where there were those whom risked their lives to save countless Jewish people, people of Jewish faith, whom were spared because there were those um, whom put aside evil and saw to it that those whom had endured um, unfair persecution ought to have the right to be able to live, even in a time of sadness or a time of darkness. 
that's just one of uh, many examples I could think of. So I'll just point out to you all right now that we are going to um, find out, we're going to um, have to learn about some darkness here. But the big question is, is in the end, which will have to be in another podcast segment episode or two, how will um, the situation that we um, will learn more about tonight in tonight's episode and how it unravels, how will we be able to get out of that darkness? In other words, whatever dark moment happens, there has to be some kind of lesson taught. There has to be some uh, perhaps new measures that will be put into play that could greatly modify what will go about unraveling in the moments to come that we will be uh, talking about. So let's go ahead and um, get our um, seat belts on. I know that sounds kind of odd to say, but let's um, fasten our seat belts and um, start our engines and uh, get the show um, going. So here we go, folks, for another uh, episode to um, Alvin F. Oikel's uh, disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie. What kind of sounds had been made which indicated the first signs of trouble aboard steamship Erie on the night of August 9, 1841? Sounds you know, can be big, they can be small, they can be faint traces, but sometimes, you know, when we hear something that doesn't sound right, we know that it's best to say that there is a problem. I It would probably be fair to say in 1841 that there would have been no such famous phrase like we know today through NASA as Houston, we have a problem. Anyways, what do you all think in terms of the types the type or types of sounds that had been made which went about indicating the first signs of trouble aboard steamship Erie on the night of August 9, 1841? Well, uh, one passenger re- remembered hearing a sound resembling a minor eruption. Not one that would have uh, knocked everyone's socks off right away. Not one that would have sent um, people, um, how do you say it, not one that would have been so loud that you would have seen uh, objects falling off the table right away, for example. But one passenger remembered hearing a sound that resembled a minor eruption. Perhaps what he heard that was minor could have ultimately led to something that, w- that had great potential to uh, result in something bigger. How, not just how, a minor eruption, but how about a blast, a minor blast. The sound was also one per this um, passenger whose name wasn't um, identified, but he did admit um, in the aftermath of the disaster, so that should lead us to um, be convinced that he was a survivor. He uh, recalled uh, detecting this sound as one that contained hisses. You know, when I think of, you know, hisses, usually the first thing that might come to my mind is like when an animal hisses, like a cat hisses, you know. You know, cats hiss because they probably don't want to be held much longer than they've already been held. But we should also be reminded of the fact that even appliances can make strange hissing sounds you know think about like you know if you have a gas stove um gas furnace oven or a gas stove oven sometimes um you know when the water uh goes off on the um on the burner and it makes a loud sound well i mean that's a normal sound but if you saw or noticed that there were other sounds being made that that didn't uh, sound good that could be an indication that perhaps um, there could be an internal, assumed to be internal gas leak in your house to where it could be something very catastrophic where the house itself might catch on fire. So maybe it could be fair to say that this passenger, heard, based upon the sound that he heard, being one that contained hisses could be the beginning of something so grand 
to where once all of the energy gets let out, there may not be any means of being able to to contain um, the mess, to to put it out via um, water. Like, you know, when, a, when there's a fire, we, you know, try to put out fire with the water or, you know, with a smoke detector, depending on the scope of the fire. So, you know, it's one, again, it's one thing for something you hear sound and there's hissing, but could it be something that leads to that ultimate grand finale where once it, once it goes and explodes, there's no containing it. 11-year-old Andrew Blyla, Erie's call boy, also heard a loud sound that was unfamiliar to him. Blyla went to Jerome McBride in the Wheelman's stateroom, whom said the following, in quotations, folks, Oh, it's nothing. Perhaps they have blown out a boiler head, or something of that sort has occurred. I'm wondering for Jerome McBride if he's, you know, he's in the he's in the in the Wheelman's stateroom, so he obviously had no way of knowing just how severe this hissing sound was. But I'm beginning to wonder if Jerome, if uh, Jerome McBride is the type who. Don't mean it the wrong way, but you have to wonder if some crewmen just don't really do a good job of doing their homework. They may say that they've done their homework, but are some crewmen the type that are more prone to overlooking uh, potential de uh, structural deficiencies, whereas others will go above and beyond to study every little nook and cranny and say, okay, this looks good, but what if something happened on this side of the device that could just literally um, make or break the safety of not only the crew, but that of the passengers? So, for uh, Jerome McBride to say, well, oh, it's nothing, that to me is, um, well, to me, that's kind of a cocky statement. And isn't it fair to say that that could be a cocky remark, given that from the previous podcast segment, we learned that the Erie had um, had um, its share of some um, unfortunate mishaps from previous uh, voyages prior to August 9th? Yes, given that she had collided with another ship and had to be towed, that caused damage. Uh, there was already another incident with a boiler. But, you know, um, I also have to be reminded of the fact that no matter how many times devices get repaired, like an engine, it doesn't automatically mean that, er that everything will be fine the second go-around or, or the third go-around. You know, appliances have a mind of their own. We know that from today's modern-day conveniences. But you almost have to wonder, okay, if the engine that we're operating on isn't good, considering some of the issues it's had in the past, maybe we need to upgrade to something different. But we also have to keep in mind that technology in the 1840s, or really, I should say, in the mid-19th century, it's not the same as we know it today. And what I mean in today's world is that technology is changing all the time. In the 19th century and beforehand, when something did change technologically wise, it may have been once every 10, 15, tw even 20 years, depending on the uh, device itself. But when the change happened, it was a big deal. But of course, in today's time, with whatever new instruments or gadgets that are um that are um, presented today or say come tomorrow for the greater uh, public, there's no guarantee that those new gadgets that get presented tomorrow will be around uh, five, ten years from now. They'll have something else new by then to take its place. William Hughes, officer in charge of the cargo, he was uh, the one that was responsible for um, making sure that the cargo uh, stayed in place and did not um, get um, misaligned while in transit or uh, while, um, while the ship was uh, navigating along the waters. So William Hughes, being the officer in charge of the uh, cargo, he sprang right into action as soon as he heard a hissing sound. 
along with seeing skylight windows having been lit as a result of the flame's impact from below. Well, for William Hughes to see right away that the uh, skylight windows were lit, and they weren't lit for leisurely purposes, folks, but knowing that the flames have are come, they have originated from below, and now they're wa- making their way all the way to the, to the highest uh, upper floor uh, levels of the ship, that's definitely a red flag to me, and knowing that, well, if I just saw something come from below, I need to get out there. I need to be able to alert every passenger there is outside, crewmen whom aren't aware of, of what's just happened. Because think about it, folks. You've got people who are asleep. You know, think about it. There are no walkie-talkies. There are no uh, cell phones. There are, you know, we had mentioned from a previous podcast about how Andrew Blyla, being the, 11, the 11-year-old and he's the call boy, he's constantly having to walk and run from point A to point B per each section of the ship to notify crewmen of what is taking place, even if it's non-emergency related. I'm sure some of us are wondering, well, where's Andrew Blyla right now? Well, I could tell you this much. He's probably doing whatever he can to um, advise not only the crew, but those uh, passengers who don't know what's unraveling to say, hey, get out wherever you are. In, whether you're in your uh, personal cabin room or, or in a recreational room, get out now while you still have a chance. So, yes, William Hughes, officer in charge of cargo, he sprang right into action as soon as he heard the hissing sound along with seeing the skylight windows having been lit as a result of the flames' impact from below. Theodore Sears, just so happens, folks, that Theodore Sears was one of the eight painters whom described the sound, or the hissing sound, I should say, as one that was incredibly heavy. In other words, maybe for Theodore Sears, he had never heard a sound of that magnitude. And based upon observations from the main deck, Sears confirmed spotting flames coming through the gangway. I'm sure most of you probably have heard that term gangway, but some of you probably haven't. So for those of you who have not heard, whom are not familiar with the term gangway, I'll go ahead and mention it to you. But I will tell you, uh, for you folks out there uh, who are not familiar with the term gangway, it has nothing to do with gangs. And that's a good thing. So a gangway is what we call a narrow walkway, or I should say a platform that provides safe access to a ship. It could also provide safe access to other uh, modes of transportation, most notably like train. But in this case, it's going to, this narrow walkway or platform will be one that provides safe access to the ship. And it's not just for ship, but it also serves for dual purposes. Okay, so how can a gangway serve as in terms of dual purpose, the gangway allows people and cargo to move safely to and from multiple docks. Okay, so you are getting not only, we would say getting you, not only are, are you over, enabling or overseeing that people get from point A to point B, but cargo is moving safely to and from docks. The flames were coming through the gangway, folks, at such a fast pace per uh, Theodore Sears' observations and per his recollections. The flames came through so quickly to the point where they became so intense to to where even he himself could not see anything visible past 10 feet. If you can't see anything visible past 10 feet, for example, then you know that, um, for one, it's bad. And two, it's not just bad, it's beyond bad. And three, if you can't see anything visible past 10 feet, we could be looking at a matter of life and death in in a very short time span, probably somewhere under 30 minutes at best. 
So now we have to start asking ourselves, how much longer does Steamship Erie have left to live before it could before it could totally just disintegrate, or not just disintegrate, but it could totally explode to the point where she will not only uh, where to where she will, would not only no longer be able to uh, stand afloat, but perhaps sink. You know, uh, not to get off track, but you know, Titanic. I shouldn't, you know, yes, I know I did a great podcast series uh, on Titanic, and I'm very thankful that many of you all uh, took um, great interest in that series. You know, Titanic received several warnings, at least seven ice warnings, uh, between five and seven ice warnings, if I'm not mistaken, on the night of, uh, during the day and into the evening of April 14th, 1912. The technology had improved. The only problem was that there were no laws on the books making it mandatory that all ships um, have their uh, wireless Marconi uh, systems um, running 24 hours. So remember, wireless operators could turn off their Marconi stations at any uh, given point in time uh, during the day or evening. So... If there was a ship that maybe may have been twenty miles away from you, but you couldn't get through to them, you might have been uh, you might have seen yourself speaking to someone who to a um, Marconi wireless operator who was on a vessel that was fifty miles away from you. There's a big difference, folks, between a ship that could be only ten miles away versus one that was fifty miles away, and I think we learned uh, a valuable lesson in that uh, podcast uh, series about how the ship that was supposedly much closer by to Titanic didn't come to Titanic's rescue because of her um, mentally unstable fit uh, captain, whereas that other ship was about 60 miles away, but yet his captain risked, but yet Carpathia's captain risked everything there was. And even though his ship uh, didn't make it in enough time to rescue any survivors or, or um, additional survivors, he was still hailed as a hero because he went out of his way to answer the call of duty, knowing that there was a chance that he might not make it in enough time to rescue additional survivors com- versus those whom had already made it on to a multiple lifeboats being the 705 whom did survive uh, that uh, fateful night of April the 14th, 1912 aboard RMS Titanic. So as for uh, Steamship Erie, Steamship Erie uh, did not have, there was no such thing in 1841 as a wireless Marconi system. That doesn't come until the very, very late 19th century into the start of the 20th century. So, given the situation now that Erie is in with the fire, Captain Titus does not have a walkie-talkie system. He doesn't have um, what we might think of as like a CB radio system where he can phone in and say Mayday, Mayday, or um, this is, I'm I'm issuing a a certain code for emergency distress that um, is a matter of life and death. You know, yes, there is the United States Coast Guard, folks. I mean, the Coast Guard was established in 1789, but even the Coast Guard, it may not, it's obviously not sophisticated in 1841 like it is today. We don't have, there's no such thing as helicopters in 1841 that can perform uh, dive and rescue operations where people are have been thrown off the ship and, and um, Coast Guard divers can come in and um, save those individuals. Now, at around 8 p.m., folks, on August the 9th, why is the time of 8 p.m. important? Because that was the time, or the exact moment, where the explosion first made its presence known, or I should say felt. A gentleman by the name of Hiram de Groff, a passenger returning home to Davies County, Illinois. Now, I'm not sure where Davies County, Illinois is, but all I know is that uh, Mr. Hiram de Groff was a passenger returning home to Davies County, Illinois. He called the ex- he recalled um, the explosion as one that was so intense to where it resembled 
how cork from a beer barrel escaped, but it was much louder. You know, yes, you you know, I, I know very well like when it, when you're popping off the cork off a bottle of champagne, it can be a loud sound. But obviously the sound that Mr. DeGroff heard in terms of uh, recalling the explosion was probably one that was beyond 10 times the sound of a um, average um, sound that would have uh, come about when cork was being um, popped off from a beer from a beer barrel. Um, Hiram de Groff was seated on the right side of Erie being her starboard uh, deck and confirmed spotting multiple passengers resting on the boiler deck once the explosion ensued. So I can't imagine uh, resting right above the boiler deck, right above the boiler deck's confines, even though the boiler deck is below. But all of a sudden, folks, all this gas, all this pressure, the right conditions, and all of a sudden you've got an explosion and it ensues, or I should say unravels. I think, it, sadly to say, I think most of those people whom were... Um, resting on the boiler deck, probably never made it out alive. Sad to say, but it's probably very true. Jerome McBride and Andrew Blyla, I bet many of you are beginning to wonder what happened with these two men, given that Andrew Blyla uh, went to Jerome McBride to get his answer or advice on that strange hissing sound. Jerome McBride and Andrew Blyla were each were forced to run past scorching flames as the flames themselves went about destroying Erie's wooden walls. I can't imagine being in either one of these two fellas' shoes and running like a madman, knowing that this is a matter of life and death, but knowing that you are going to have to run past flames, flames that could literally eat you alive to the point where it could burn you. And we're not just talking dinky burns, folks. Flames that could literally, if the flames themselves are engulfing the wood and, um, and breaking the wood apart, I can't imagine what these flames would do to a human being. It would probably, it would probably kill them in a short matter of time. You know, flames are, are so lethal, folks, that even the temperature of the flames can consume people to the point where they can pass out and ultimately succumb to, um, succumb to uh, the, the intense um, smoke exhaustion. Smoke exhaustion can literally uh, make you pass out to the point where you lose your conscious, lose consciousness and ultimately take your life. So... For Jerome McBride and Andrew Blyla, they're both on, on borrowed time, and probably the same would go for everybody else on board the ship, given what is now unraveling. So for, uh, for these two fellows, they um, are forced to run past the scorching flames as they went about um, destroying Erie's wooden walls. Nearby was the gangplank, or I should say the walkway, the platform, Jerome McBride went as far as tossing the gangplank or via the wooden structure overboard into the water. Now, why would he toss this wooden structure overboard? He did so because, he, for the following, he has advised Andrew Blyla to jump immediately, and once he has jumped into the water, to make his way to the gangplank. Well, McBride um, jumped into the water after Blyla did, but but believe it or not, uh, Mc, Jerome McBride did get burnt. His hands got burnt. Andrew Blyla apparently did not get burnt. Uh, to me, that was a miracle. So, both men are safe, folks. They are safe. Although Jerome McBride endured intense agony from burns sustained by fires, both men resorted to using their hands by paddling 
what I mean, they don't have oars, folks, but they are p paddling via the gangplank away from the burning Erie. So if you don't have an actual oar to paddle with, folks, what are you having to use? You're using your own hands, arms. So this is where you have to reinvent things in a time of crisis. I'm beginning to wonder if this situation, given how quickly everything unraveled, became one where it was every man for himself or every person for themselves in a short matter of time to where no one in terms of the captain and the crew had the means to be able to prepare for for a lifeboat drill or just prepare to launch the lifeboats down and uh, bring them back up. How about this question? Um, whom informed Captain Titus of the dire uh, situation? How about William, H William Hughes, the officer in charge of the cargo? Captain Titus went from the upper deck to the ladies' cabin where life jackets or preservers were stored. Despite ordering the deckhands to get the fire bu buckets filled with water, Captain Titus himself witnessed firsthand severe intensity of flames which burst through the deck and got as high as the walking beam or I should say the overhead apparatus responsible for driving the paddle wheels. I mean, think about this, folks. So many things are changing right before Captain Titus's eyes. He's trying to stay as calm as he can, but it's probably fair to say that deep down inside that Captain Titus is in the fight for his life. He's in the fight for his life not only as a captain himself, but for that of his crew and passengers, it's probably fair to say that Captain Titus might already even know deep down inside that he, he could be looking at casualties greater than a hundred. He knows that he only has three lifeboats. Who's to say if that, you know, in Captain Titus's mind, you know, yes, I would hope that I could still have the time to um, get these three lifeboats launched successfully. But what if they, what if they all don't get launched successfully? What happens if only one of them does? So you think about how many things have just been thrown at him. It, it you know yes it's not fair but it but it's happening. Uh, given the flames quickly made their way into the boiler room, along with along with engineer himself unable to reach the engine to turn the mechanism off, what was the pilot, aka the wheelsman, forced to do? The pilot got instructed to turn ship to the right going forward where there could have been a better chance in reaching access to land. In the midst of the pilot turning the ship a starboard to the right, the Erie's crew tried in vain to lower her lifeboats into the water. Did you hear that, folks? In the midst of the pilot turning the ship a starboard to the right, Erie's crew tried in vain to lower her lifeboats into the water. As a result of the ship's turn or hard turn, two of the three lifeboats shortly rolled or keeled over on their sides, most likely due to such common factors or elements such as wave action, rough waves, instability. And what I mean by instability, folks, is the loss of stability due to cargo shifting or flooding. The two lifeboats sunk very quickly. Man, I can't imagine knowing that here your crew is trying in vain to lower her to lower uh, Erie's lifeboats into the water, and now all of a sudden you've lost two out of out of your three lifeboats. That means 67% of your lifeboat capacity is gone and 67% of your passengers now probably will not survive. But think about it, folks. There were probably there were just over 300 passengers aboard the ship and there are three lifeboats. Who's to say that 
The three lifeboats alone could not even hold anywhere close to 100 people per each boat. We're probably looking at, we might be looking at best folks, that each of these lifeboats probably could have held 25 people per boat. And even if they were, were filled to capacity, who's to say that a ship nearby would have been able to have made it in enough time to have helped get those people off the lifeboats and only to send the lifeboats back over to Erie to rescue those not only aboard the ship, but those stranded in the water. This is where time is very, very fragile. Lifeboat number three, though, folks, there is a glimmer of hope here, folks. Lifeboat number three was launched successfully, but only contained five people. Five people, folks, being Captain Titus and four others. Only one other passenger made it on board, the third lifeboat. Several passengers, including other crewmen, jumped off Erie in large numbers to avoid the flames. And they did this, folks, for a reason. They wanted to avoid becoming statistics, casualties. Okay, if it's one thing to jump, jump off the ship, aren't they missing something? I mean, isn't there something that we learned from a previous uh, podcast early on? That, um, that I didn't think existed before the 20th century. It would be fair to say that most of us probably didn't know it either too, but I'll, I'll tell you all here in a moment. Uh, is it fair to say that the intensity behind the boiler explosion was so powerful to where many people, or I should say passengers, were instantly thrown off guard? Absolutely yes. For one, there were no advanced warnings, given just how unsuddenly everything unraveled within a short time frame. Passengers were scattered throughout different sections along the boat, and most likely many wouldn't have known where to go in obtaining essentials, a.k.a. life jackets, to securing access to an escape route, being the gangway. Now, we have to remember, folks, that this ship on the night of August 9th, 1841, it was only out on the water for a short period of time, so we can't compare it. We can't compare this ship to Titanic's maiden voyage, and of course, knowing that her maiden voyage was sadly her last voyage, Titanic was out on, out on the uh, North Atlantic Ocean for at least four days prior to April 14th of 1912. Erie was out on the water at best an hour. So there's a big difference between being out on the water for four days versus being out on the water just for one day and only for a couple of hours at best. But at the same time, I'm wondering how come there wasn't any uh, preparation, advanced preparation for, um, for drills, in other words, there should have been some, well, who knows? Maybe there would have been uh, some dr form of drill where passengers would have gotten um, a tour of where to go in the event of an emergency. Who knows? But I also have to wonder that in the aftermath of what we're learning about and we'll continue to learn more about, if, if indeed there will be changes made, what kind of changes will there be, and will it pertain to requiring um, drill procedures taking place before a voyage or drill procedures taking place during the midst of a voyage from point A to point B along Great Lakes waters? An anonymous, or rather I should say, unidentified passenger whom would go on to survive the wreck recalled years later in an interview uh, witnessing half a dozen to 15 passengers inside the saloon or the bar get taken out instantly once the flames had bursted out from the boiler deck. I can't imagine seeing um, anywhere from half a dozen to 15 or more passengers inside a facility 
get taken out instantly because of the uh, severe intensity of the of the of the uh, fire flames or of the fires themselves have these flames having burst out from the boiler deck and this was all due folks given to the fact that there was very very close proximity to where both of these facilities stood next to one another this anonymous um, unidentified passenger also recalled seeing scores of German immigrants packed tightly on the forward deck, praying to God for help in time of crisis. Think about it, folks. These, many of these passengers aboard Erie are finally at that point where they think, okay, we're not far from our new um, establishment in the new world. We're not far from making a new life, new dreams, new memories, new chances simply for that better life. Not just for husband and wife, but to give a better opportunity for their, for their children, for, for future generations of a family that would come. Sadly, folks, for many of these immigrants and just people in general returning to their uh, homes like in Michigan, given that they probably went to visit family in New York State and now are going back home to Michigan. Everybody on board, folks, their lives are going to change. Even if those who do survive, knowing that if they survive, they can live to tell the story, but it's going to be one that that was never intended to be. In other words, what unraveled on August 9th, 1841, in their eyes, probably should never have happened. But also knowing that there were so many people who came over to America from the old world, whom lived to see, um, whom worked vigorously to see that this could happen, only to not be able to live to see the end result. The end result. It's a terrible um, paradox or tragedy. Uh, what happened around 10 p.m. August the 9th? The first rescue ship, being the DeWitt Clinton, arrived at the scene of Erie's wreck. Why is the, De the DeWitt Clinton worth mentioning? Well, the DeWitt Clinton, like steamship Erie, was a passenger freighter vessel. She's named for DeWitt Clinton, a prominent New York statesman, a politician whom also was governor of New York State on more than one occasion. But the big thing about DeWitt Clinton is that he was the man whom helped oversee or spearhead the Erie Canal Project. It was DeWitt Clinton whom vigorously championed the canal. And at one point, uh, not to get off track here, but we must keep in mind that um, there were many uh, Northerners in Congress whom demanded that the government, a.k.a. the federal government, go about building the Erie Canal. Southerners, not to get political folks, but this is true, the Southerners opposed it. They opposed it because they saw no means for a system that obviously had no positive impact on their way of uh, life being an agrarian economy. Uh, why should there be a system built that will only help one side of the nation um, whom would reap the rewards more so than, than the opposing side? So long story short, uh, DeWitt Clinton went before the New York State Legislature and they um, worked together to uh, go about privately um, they went about going together to uh, help uh, fund the necessary money through uh, private um, private fundraising, private donations, uh, a state lottery system, but it was through uh, private funds that ultimately went about building one of the great engineering marvels in America at that time. So whenever you hear of DeWitt Clinton, you think of the Erie Canal. So, yes, the... The um, steamship uh, DeWitt Clinton departed from Buffalo Harbor just a few hours before steamship Erie. 
Upon rescue arrival, the Clinton crew confirmed that Erie's entire hull, being her main body, her uh, watertight body, was already burnt away, leaving behind a smoked-out wooden frame around a boiler that still remained intact. The whole hull was burnt above the waterline where the main body met the water surface. So I can't imagine b being from uh, the DeWitt Clinton and seeing before your eyes something that you never would have wanted to have seen, but yet it has come before you and knowing that what you have witnessed, not, not only was just a shipwreck, but a shipwreck that um, produced um, a great, that more than likely had resulted in a massive uh, loss of life. Did Captain Titus, in the midst of all the uncertainty, make an effort to go below deck and obtain life jackets? Ah, remember what I mentioned earlier? You know, everybody's jumping off the ship. It's one thing to do that, but how are you going to stay afloat? Especially if you don't know how to swim or, or you're in a state of panic mode. But um, how are you going to um, survive in those troubling and unsettling waters. So did Captain Titus, in the midst of all the uncertainty, make an effort to go below deck and obtain life jackets? Yes. But while starting his journey down below, he right away saw firsthand the entire cabin get engulfed in large flames. Before escaping the ship, Captain Titus did whatever he could to aid and assist despite the flames coming over at rapid uh, at a rapid pace given the boiler um, room's explosion. Titus did manage to help launch lifeboats on board, although only one of the, one of the three got successfully lowered down in the midst of the chaos. Captain Titus witnessed crewmen and staff go over, that is, jump the ship for safety. Ocean waves grew all the more intense to where Erie's crane broke loose. And sad to say, folks, the crane that broke loose uh, went about tragically uh, killing a, a second engineer by the name of Mr. Allen. It's bad enough that you could perish via drowning, but to die as a result of a broken um crane but of course this was brought on by not only just the weather the unsettling weather but the fire but still it's a terrible way to go once captain titus abandoned ship and usually when i think of the term abandoned ship that's usually where the inevitable has come you've done everything you can to modify the un the unexpected You've exhausted all your resources. So more than likely when the captain knows it's time to abandon ship, he's going to say this command, Abandon ship! Well, I know that may not be the, be the loudest, but that's the loudest I can give you all in terms of an example. So whenever you hear abandon ship, then you know it's time to go. Because if you don't go, as the captain tells you to, it could mean pretty much a matter of life and death within seconds. Sadly, in this case, oh, for Captain Titus, he didn't really have the means or the time to be able to tell people abandon ship out loud. He was doing so many things at once. But at least we know that he has ex that he exhausted all of his um, resources. He didn't, you know jump the boat right away and say, oh, well, I'm just going to let everybody else take care of the problem. No, no. Once Captain Titus abandoned ship, he hardly could see anyone visible along the horizon despite hearing immense outcries of those struggling to stay afloat in the midst of the pounding waves hitting the stricken passengers from all corners. Although Captain Titus had first-hand experience with lake vessels, whom got into collisions. He, he had never faced a situation until now 
where it meant abandoning his own vessel, including facing dangers where it meant saving his own life being stranded miles from land in the middle of the night. Yes, it's one thing to have been in a collision like he had been in from what we learned about in the previous uh, podcast from, say, like the year before. Been in collision with uh, another ship in the uh, Detroit River. But to all of a sudden be um, in a situation that he had no control or let alone means of preparation for, boiler um, exploding, and now all of a sudden the ship has caught his engulfed in, in massive flames to where it's just a matter of time, a matter of a short period of time, folks. We're not talking, you know, the Titanic, it took her two and a half hours to sink. And yet this ship is going to sink, uh, the steamship Erie is going to sink easily in less than an hour, or maybe not so much in less than an hour, but but she's going to sink um, at some point rather soon. I, I don't know why I say that, but I, I just do. So, although, um, so what do we say here? Although Captain Titus made it on board the third lifeboat, he could hear cries of people, being most notably passengers stranded in the water. He went as far as offering an oar to one of the passengers so she could remain afloat. The DeWitt Clinton rescued, at best, less than a hundred people, including Captain Titus. There, um, the, the DeWitt Clinton's crew her captain and crew, rather, I should say, tried to uh, come up with a um, plan to tow what was left of the Erie to shore. But come dawn of August 10th, 1841, steamship Erie sank, vanished altogether. I think it's fair to say that even the night of August 9th, 1841, could be considered a night to remember. The only reason I say that per that phrase is because a fellow by the name of Walter Lord, in 1955, I want to say it was sometime in the mid-1950s, wrote a book called A Night to Remember based upon the sinking of the Titanic back from 1912. This will definitely be a night to remember for uh, Captain uh, T.J. Titus, one that he probably would not want to remember, but it is one of those um, harrowing experiences that he um, never thought he would um, be dealing with, but yet it has happened. Well, thank you for your time as always. We've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment episode, and when I'm on the air again next, uh, we're going to be... Um, talking about what's uh, what's called an appalling calamity. So in other words, we're going to uh, focus um, upon the, um, the negative side in terms of um, losses from a financial standpoint. We're also going to uh, get uh, some other account reports from uh, newspapers whom publish stories about the sinking based upon those whom survived. Well, uh, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all. And no matter where you all live in the world, uh, stay safe. Take care for now.